Last week, we shared in the Lord's Supper together, and that was a beautiful time of worship. And we took a little bit of a pause to share that together. And so today, we're going to jump back into our sermon series that we've been doing called Meet Jesus. And I want to remind you, two weeks ago, when we last um, looked at this series, we looked at the tragedy of the life of a man named Pontius Pilate, Roman governor over Judea, and we saw that Pilate rejected the invitation of Jesus by trying to avoid the question of Jesus. And what we saw last week was the truth that no one can avoid the question of Jesus. That it's a question that demands an answer. It demands a decision. The nature of who Jesus claimed to be demanded that each and every one of us make a decision as to who he is. There is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. We can't stand back and say, oh, well, I'm just not going to get involved in not making a decision about who Jesus is, you've already made your decision. And that's what we saw in the life of Pilate. But today we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, if you want to go ahead and find that in your Bible. And we're going to look at another person specifically who had a personal, intimate encounter with Jesus. Probably one of the most unique encounters anyone has ever had with Jesus. Because lots of people met Jesus, touched Jesus, came in contact with him. But as Jesus hung on the cross dying, there are only two people in history who were able to look horizontally face to face into the eyes of Jesus as he hung on the cross. And of course that was the two men who were crucified on either side of Jesus. And so we're going to look at these two men, we're going to see how they're alike But then we're going to see how they became very, very different because of the encounter that they had with Jesus. So I want you to look in Luke 23 with me. We're going to begin in verse 39. Verse 39, I'm going to read to you from the NIV. It says that one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, meaning Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke is the only gospel that gives us details of a conversation between Jesus and this dying thief. So we only have these five verses to really go on. But even in just these five verses, there is a wealth of truth that it will teach us about the nature of the gospel and about the nature of a person who truly encounters salvation through Jesus. So before we look at the thief individually, the repentant thief, we'll call him, because the gospels don't name either of them, let's talk about how they were both alike. 
there were two of these men hanging on either side of Jesus. First, they were both guilty criminals. It was, it was obvious. There was, no, there was no question. There was debate with Jesus as to whether he was guilty or not. And we know that he wasn't guilty, but he was being crucified and executed as if he were guilty. These other two men, there was no question of their guilt. They were absolutely, positively guilty. And though some texts uh, use the word thieves to describe the nature of their crime, uh, it's really a lot more than that. I know when we think of thieves, sometimes we may think of just like petty thieves who may just steal, steal money, steal possessions, those kind of things. But these two men were at the very least violent robbers. I want you to think about the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. And he talked about the people who were traveling along the road became overcome by thieves and robbers. These were violent men who came, attacked, viciously attacked, beat them to almost the point of death and took everything they had. These, at the very least, these guys were those kind of people. When the Bible says thieves, they were not just thieves or pickpockets. They were violent criminals who would kill and hurt people to get what they wanted. It's also even more likely that they may have been violent political insurrectionists. We, we just talked about Pilate's encounter with Jesus, and we saw Pilate bring Barabbas, who was a violent political insurrectionist before the people, and give them a choice as to who would be crucified, who would be let go, Barabbas or Jesus. And so it's logical to think that since Barabbas was let go and Jesus was crucified, that had the tables been turned, had the people not made that decision, that cross in the middle would have belonged to Barabbas. And so these other two men on either side likely would have been criminals similar to Barabbas. They were violent men, terrorists, so to say, in our culture. So they were both guilty. Beyond any doubt. They both would have been considered by the Jews and those religious leaders as completely unredeemable. The people who were watching them, the people who were looking at these two, these two men hanging on either side of Jesus. There's no way that either of them could have been worthy of God's favor at all. There was nothing about their life that would have made them acceptable to God in the eyes of of the Jews. And then they were both hostile to Jesus. And you may we we may get an unclear picture if we only read Luke's account because when we begin in verse 39 and we begin to see this exchange what we see is one criminal who seems to be hostile to Jesus and then the other who seems to be sympathetic and supportive of Jesus. But the repentant thief's story becomes even greater if we look at the accounts of all of the Gospels and see that when those men were lifted up with Jesus, they were both the same. Um, if, you, if you look in Matthew 27, even though there's not an account of the conversation, there's a small detail that's very important to the story. In Matthew 27, beginning in verse 43, it says... They were, they were insulting, they were mocking Jesus, and they said, He trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he wants him. 
For he said, I am the Son of God. They're mocking, making fun of Jesus. But verse 44 says, in the same way, the rebels, plural, who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Matthew uses the plural to indicate it wasn't just one of the thieves that was insulting Jesus. It was both of them. Mark does the same thing in Mark 15, verse 32. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those crucified with him. Again, plural. Also heaped insults on him. So when these men were lifted up on either side of Jesus, they were a part of the crowd. They were a part. They were participating in what everybody else was doing. Heaping insults, making fun of Jesus, mocking him for saying he was the king of the Jews. They were both the same. And they started out the same. And as we continue, continue the story, we're going to see a change come over them. But when we look at, look at them together, they were really the same, the same person. And they should remind us of ourselves. The story of these men is our story. First of all, we are unmistakably guilty people before a holy God. There is no evidence that we can use to defend ourselves before God to say that we're worthy of being forgiven on our own. That we are not guilty. We are absolutely guilty. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. In James chapter 2, verse 10 James says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. We may think we have it together. We may think that we do lots of things well. But holiness and righteousness before God demands perfection. And there is no perfection in us before a holy God. We are guilty just like they were. Also, on our own, we are completely unredeemable, apart from the work of Jesus. The people looked up at these thieves and said, how could God redeem them? How, could, how would God accept them into his kingdom? Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that salvation is in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other name. It's just Jesus. And have you ever considered that when Paul says this in Acts 4, that there's no other name given among men by which we, we must be saved, do you realize that includes your name? That includes you. If there's no other name under heaven by which Eric must be saved, that includes the name of Eric. I can't do anything to redeem myself. You can't do anything to redeem yourself in the eyes of a holy, righteous God. We are guilty and we are completely hopeless without the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And because of sin, we are also hostile to God. These men were, were spewing insults at Jesus. The crowd was spewing insults at Jesus. And you say, I can't believe they would say those things to Jesus. 
You know, the scriptures tell us that us in our unregenerate, lost condition, we are also hostile to Jesus. And you don't want to believe that you're hostile to Jesus. But 1 Corinthians one twenty one says, Once, before you were a believer, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. Hostile to who? Hostile to the Father. To His Son. In Romans 8 verse 7, says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. We may not want to believe that we're hostile to God, that we're hostile to Jesus, but the story of Pilate taught us that hostility to God is our default setting until we understand the gospel and put ourselves under the lordship of Jesus. The Bible says that our spirits, our hearts, are in opposition to God. We're hostile to his truth. So the state of both of these men hanging on the cross is the same as our state. We're guilty. We have no power to save ourselves. And our spirit and hearts are hostile to the truth of God. But there's a distinct moment in this story for one of these thieves where everything changes. Everything becomes different. Now we don't know exactly when the heart of this repentant thief changed. But it's obvious that it did change. There was a definite transformation in Luke's account. And if we look at these verses now, we can outline what happened in his heart and what happens in the heart of a person who genuinely experiences a saving faith in Jesus. Look with me in verse 40. It says, But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? The first thing that happened in this man's heart was the rise of fear. The rise of fear. He had been a part of ridicule and mockery of Jesus. He had joined in with the crowd. He had joined in with the other thief. But there was a point as he hung on that cross that the fear of God became real to him. And he began to understand that his judgment was deserved. And that there was a holy, righteous God who stood in judgment over him. And the fear of the Lord came into his heart. And I believe that there was a point where they're all hurling insults at Jesus and both of these thieves are just going back and forth. But then when the Holy Spirit began to bring conviction on the heart of this thief, he suddenly got quiet. At one point he quit hurling insults at Jesus. Because there was a fear that rose up in him. He knew that he was subject to the power and the judgment of God. And then he went from being silent and not participating to speaking out in rebuke against the other thief. And he says to him, don't you fear God? In that, confessing 
that he did realize that God and God's judgment was something worthy to be feared. Psalm 111, Proverbs 1, and Proverbs 9 all say, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Conviction of the sinner before a righteous God is the first step to salvation. You ever notice how people who are outwardly hostile toward God and the things of God say things that just say and do things sometimes that just give you chills? Because, you know why? Because they have no fear. The fear of God is not in them. The fear of judgment is not real to them. And so they say all manner of things that are evil and wicked and blasphemous toward God. Because they're not afraid. Because they don't recognize who God is. They don't realize that God has the power to judge them. And once we realize that he stands in judgment over us, then the Holy Spirit allows us to see who we are in comparison to who he is. That he is sovereign Lord over the universe. And he is the king and he's the ruler. And he's the rule maker because he's the creator. And all of a sudden there, there should be a fear that comes over us. And we say, oh, well, we don't, we don't want to scare people into accepting the gospel. You're right. I, I, I hate that. I'll tell you all, I've seen before those those things that, that churches and ministries do, these like haunted house things where you go in and you sit down and they, and, and they really just basically scare the, the, whatever you want to say, out of people and, and they come out of it and they send them down and say, hey, if you don't want to experience this, you can be saved. Pray this prayer and you can become a Christian. And people... People do that. They respond to that out of fear. And I don't necessarily think that we should manipulate people with fear to accept the gospel. I don't, I don't think that's... Jesus never did that. He didn't manipulate through fear. But he was very clear to speak about judgment. And he was very clear to say, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 12. Uh, Luke 12, I'm sorry, verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, this is the words of Jesus. Now listen. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus said, there's a fear that should come on us when we realize that we are sinners in the hands of a righteous God. And sometimes when we share the gospel with people, we only talk to, to them about how great it is to have a relationship with Jesus, how forgiving and how loving Christ is, and absolutely those things are true. But church, a part of our story, a part of our sharing the gospel with people should be to let them know that there's a judgment that comes for those who choose to reject Jesus and not take what he has offered. If I'm standing on those railroad tracks out there and a train is coming, I hope to goodness somebody will tell me that the train is coming. 
Because if I don't make a decision to get out of the way, it's going to kill me. We have to tell people that there's a judgment for those. And the fear of the Lord is a very real thing. And this thief on the cross experienced the fear of the Lord. And he said, don't you fear God? The second thing he did was he admitted he was guilty. The admission of guilt. Look at verse 41. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. This thief realized that the human judgment he was receiving was fair. And that it was just, that they deserved what they were getting. But he also realized that not only did he deserve judgment from the people, he deserved judgment from God. Once we realize the reality of the power of God over us, the next thing that we become aware of is that we're guilty people. As long as we stand before holy God and think that we're okay all by ourselves, that we really aren't guilty of anything really, really bad, we allow our pride to trick us into thinking that we don't need to be forgiven. And as long as we have the heart, as long as we are in a state of not understanding how desperate we are for the forgiveness of God, we can never receive salvation. This man saw the righteousness of Jesus as he hung on the cross beside him. He saw the life, the nature, the character of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus as he hung there on the cross, and he saw himself. He knew himself. Folks, this is, this is what's so important for us to understand the gospel. Before we can really understand and embrace the gospel, we have to stop looking at ourselves in comparison to everybody else around us, and we have to see ourselves in light of who Jesus is. As long as you compare yourself to everybody else, you're going to be pretty good. You're going to be okay. There's not going to be a whole lot of things that you do that are that bad. And that's how so many people are fooled into thinking, well, I'll be okay. No, you won't. See, the thief stopped comparing himself to everybody else. And he all of a sudden compared himself to the man he was hanging next to. And he realized how guilty he was. We have to not compare ourselves to the world, but compare ourselves to God. Because that's the standard we're judged by. And then the third thing that happened was his cry for mercy. Once he realized that God had power to judge him and the fear of the Lord came in his heart, it brought conviction. It brought admission that he was guilty. And the only thing left was to ask for mercy. And so he turns to Jesus in verse 42. And then he said, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. There are a couple of things that are remarkable about the way he asks Jesus for salvation. The first thing 
was have you ever noticed he calls Jesus by name? He doesn't say master, teacher, prophet. He turns his head and looks across and says his name, Jesus. He was looking for something more than just to get out of what he was suffering through. He was looking for a relationship. The people who were looking for healing just called Jesus a healer. The people who were looking for knowledge called him a teacher. But this man wanted, wanted to know him. And so he says Jesus by name. And then he acknowledges Jesus' identity as the king. He agreed that Jesus was exactly who he said he was when he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't say, Jesus, if you really are a king, remember me if you come into your kingdom. He was professing his faith. I know you're a king. I get it now. And even in these moments hanging here, you know, do you know how he, he changed so quickly even in those hours hanging on the cross? The work of the Holy Spirit. How do we cross over from death to life? How do we have go from that moment of not understanding the gospel to all of a sudden understanding it? It's because of the Holy Spirit. And he looks over at Jesus and he says, I get it now. I get it. I understand. I know who you are. All those things that I didn't know, I didn't think all of those things that you said were true, but I see now they are. And I really do believe you're the king of a kingdom that no one here can see. And when you go into that kingdom, if you'll take me, I know I'm hanging here guilty. You're not guilty, but I am. And if you'll let me be a part of that kingdom, I really want to be. And so the greatest part of the story is verse 43. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You know why Jesus said, truly I tell you? He said that a lot. He's prefacing what he's about to say. In essence, listen. I want you to really pay attention to what I'm about to tell you because what I'm about to tell you is going to be really hard to believe. He's saying, listen to me. Pay attention because what I'm about to tell you is going to be maybe really hard for you to get, but I'm telling you it's absolutely true. And he says that to this thief. Today, you will be with me in my kingdom. I hope that your hope for heaven is not to see Jesus. I hope that your hope for heaven is that you will be with Jesus. We don't go to heaven to see Jesus. We go to heaven to be with Jesus. And there's a big difference between those two things. Sometimes not knowing, we, we talk about heaven and say, oh, I get to go to heaven and see Jesus. I hope you get to do way more than, you'll, you'll do way more than see Jesus. There are people, lots of people who saw Jesus 
and are in hell today. We don't go to heaven so we can see him. We go to heaven to be with him. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place, I'm going to come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus' ultimate desire in saving us is so that we can be with him. So we can be where he is. That this separation that we experience now physically is no more. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So you may read this story and say, well, listen, that sounds good, Eric, but how do we know this guy really went to heaven? I mean, he was bad. He did lots of really bad things. And, and just because he has some change of heart at the very end, right before he dies, does that mean he really went to heaven? How does, how does he, did he go to heaven the same way that the disciples, the people who died for Jesus, the people who gave their lives for the gospel, the people who followed Jesus for the majority of their lives, do you mean he went to heaven the same way they did? Absolutely. Absolutely he did. And you say, well, how do we know that? How do we know? We don't see anything in this guy's life that proves it. We know that he's in heaven not because of any proof. We know it because of the promise. Because of the way Jesus responds to him. Jesus responded and said, today you will be with me. And when Jesus says, today you will be with me, then you will be with Jesus because Jesus is always true. That's how we know he's in heaven. It's because of the promise. And the good news for us is that there's a promise for us. This word is a promise. Just like Jesus made a promise to him and said, you'll be with me today. This word gives us a promise and says that if we acknowledge the holiness of a true and righteous God. And we understand his power and his authority and that we stand guilty as sinners under his authority. And we believe that everything that the scriptures say about Jesus is absolutely true. And everything that Jesus has done for us, including dying on the cross, where he took the guilt that was ours and died as if it were his. If we understand that, and we throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus, the promise in God's word is that God responds with a resounding, yes, you will be with me. Yes, you will be in my kingdom. The greatest thing about this story is that this man's story is your story. This man's story is my story. He, he, he's every man's, he's our story. We were criminals before God, but in understanding our guilt, we reached out for his mercy and Jesus said yes. The beginning of this story, as guilty as he was, 
is the beginning of all of our stories. The question you have to consider this morning is, does your story end the way his does? And you may ask, well, Eric, I don't don't really get it. What if someone just wastes their whole life in rebellion against God? What about those people? What about the people who, who are hostile to God and they hate God and they live in rebellion against God and then they wait until the very end of their life and they're laying on their deathbed and somehow they, they come to believe all of a sudden and they, and they say they become believers. Am I, supposed to, am I supposed to believe that they get to go to heaven just like I do? Yep. Absolutely. That's what this story shows us. You know what God is looking for? He's looking for reality. He's not looking for quantity. It has very little to do with quantity. And it has everything to do with reality. What is real? What is real in our hearts? What is real in our spirits? The way we respond to the gospel. It doesn't matter when. The reality of a transformed heart and mind because of the extravagant grace of God through Jesus. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise to the thief. In 2 Corinthians later, Paul would echo that when he says to us, today is the day of your salvation. Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer and sex offender that raped murdered and dismembered at least 17 different men and young boys from 1978 to 1991. When he was finally caught, he was convicted of 15 life prison terms in February of 1992. He was going to spend the rest of his life in prison until he died. In... February of 1994, he did an interview on Dateline NBC with Stone Phillips, nationally televised. It was a big, big media event. And in that interview, Jeffrey Dahmer told Stone Phillips and he told the entire world that he had come to understand the reality of what he had done and that he had come to believe and accept Jesus Christ as creator and as Lord and Savior of his life. In May of 1994, after that interview in February, there was a Church of Christ pastor that he called on and asked to come to the prison that was holding him and baptize him. And Dahmer was baptized in a whirlpool in that prison that held him. That was in May of 1994, six months after... He was baptized in that whirlpool in that prison. He would be on a work detail with two other prisoners. And one of those prisoners would beat him to death with a metal pipe and murder him. Here's a a man who did unspeakably, horribly graphic, depraved things that we, it's inappropriate to even talk about here. You think Jeffrey Dahmer went to heaven? 
on that day that he was murdered in that jail cell, I think it's pretty safe to say there are not a whole lot of people who were really sad to see him die. But if what happened in Jeffrey Dahmer's life, if what he said on national television was true, if the testimony of that baptism in that prison was true, if his story is the same as the story of the thief on the cross, then I believe absolutely some of us may be shocked to walk in the new heaven and the new earth with Jeffrey Dahmer. The story of the thief on the cross shows us just how amazing the grace of God truly is. If the gospel is powerful enough to save a depraved man like Jeffrey Dahmer, and if the gospel is powerful enough in the last few hours of life to save a man like that thief on the cross, then the gospel is strong enough to rescue anybody. You, me, or anyone.